Today's scripture reading is Galatians 4:21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he, was, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you as always. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted as always to see you here today. It is good, as Carol mentioned, to be gathered together, uh, to be able to see brothers and sisters, to be able to spend time together this morning. And so I'm thankful that you're able to make it out. If you're not already there in your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians Chapter 4. Well, I remember when Jessica and I were expecting uh, our firstborn son. We had all the anticipation of brand new parents, and we had spent probably way too much time having conversations about what we thought this child was going to look like and ways that we thought he was going to resemble uh, us as parents and all those kinds of things. And for whatever reason, probably because we knew that he was going to be a boy, we just assumed that he was going to look like me. I just made that assumption naturally. When I was born, I had uh, a darker complexion, I had jet black hair, and I had so much of it that I, that I kind of resembled a Muppet. It was just kind of all grew straight out, and I was born needing a haircut. If you see pictures of me as a baby, it's almost creepy how much hair I have. There was just so much of it. And so I just sort of expected that when my son was born, we would have that same thing. And so I remember when he was born, and the nurses took him, and they got him all wrapped up and cleaned up and everything, and they brought him to me, and I pulled the little cat back on his head and he had this shock of blonde hair and I was so thrown off and I looked at him and I was like man he doesn't look anything like me he looked exactly like Jessica maybe like her father even but he didn't resemble me at all and I was so thrown off and so when we had our second son I thought well maybe this will be my opportunity to finally see some of these Mosier genes pop up in this kid but my wife's Dutch heritage apparently had my genetics in some sort of a headlock maybe doing a noogie or something like that, because he came out and he, again, looked just like her. And now my daughter came along, same deal, all three of them, they've got the blonde hair. And so when I go to the store, it looks like I'm the nanny for some blonde family. Like, whose kids does this guy have? Because they don't really look like me. If you know me, maybe you can see the resemblance, but it looks like I'm watching somebody else's kids. 
And the text that we're looking at today is interesting for a whole variety of reasons, but one of the reasons it's interesting is because Paul is going to address the error of trying to live by the law, but this time he's going to look at it through the lens of the resemblance and inheritance that has passed through two specific spiritual grandmothers. It's interesting because when the Bible talks about sonship, first of all, it uses that term sonship. It doesn't mention daughterhood. And it it does that not at the exclusion of women, but because in a patriarchal society, to be a son was to be the one in high standing, to be the one who had inheritance, to be the one who had the family name, who had all the privileges of being a child of your father. And so the gospel extends this sonship and ultimately daughterhood as well to the children of God. It's saying, that we have this status. And in this patriarchal society, it's interesting because the contributions are always named as having come through the line of the father. But in this text, we're introduced to these two particular women. And in the words of one commentator, what Paul is essentially asking us as the reader to consider is, who is your mother? Who is your mother? Spiritually speaking, Where does your status, your identity, your value come from? And it's worth noting, I'll just say this right on the front end, that as I looked at this text and looked at several different commentaries that addressed it, one of the things that came up often, specifically from John Stott, was that this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And I just say that in order to say, if you were reading along as as Robert was reading this text for us and thought, what in the world are we talking about? We've got Hagar and Sarah, and we've got Jerusalem and Jerusalem above and Mount Sinai and all these different things, and it all seems rather discombobulated and, and, and disconnected from us. You are not alone. The scholars and the commentators are looking at this, and they're going, this is hard stuff to understand. I read this passage this week, and I was reminded of where Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 about Paul, and he says, Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And I think this is one of those texts, particularly for a people like us who are some 2,000 years removed from its original writing. So, We'll try to get through this together, and we'll try to see if we can make some level of sense of it. But look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 21. Paul is addressing the Judaizers, and he says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And as I read that, at least, it almost comes across with a little bit of an edge to it. You can, you can see Paul kind of almost provocatively saying this to the Judaizers. Right off the bat, he's saying, hey, you people who want to be under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Do you know what it actually means to be under the law? Do you actually know what it means to be under the confines of the law? And it raises this question for all of us because he starts by addressing those who want to be under the law. And the question is, who actually wants to be under the law? Don't we all want to be free from the law? Isn't all of our natural inclination to ignore the law, to do our own thing, to experience freedom, to define our own boundaries, to make our own way? But to understand what Paul's getting at here, we have to understand what is ultimately the most basic desire that human beings have, which I would argue is the desire for justification the desire for right standing. Now, maybe people aren't looking for justification in the religious sense. Maybe they're not looking to stand right in the eyes of God, but everybody wants to be shown to be right. None of us like to be wrong. 
We don't like to be wrong in arguments and conversations. We don't like the embarrassment of having been wrong. We don't like the guilt of having done something wrong. We don't like the shame that accompanies it. None of us like to be wrong. We don't like the idea of being judged. We don't like the idea of being on the outs. We don't like the idea of being looked down upon by other people, whether those people are within Christendom as sisters and brothers in Christ within the church thinking poorly of us, maybe because of something we've done, something we said, something in our past, some way we've failed. And we don't like the idea of being judged by the world at large. We don't like the fact, naturally speaking, that when we walk around in the world, people might look down on us for a variety of reasons. Everyone likes to be approved and affirmed. And so what everyone, regardless of your religious inclination and regardless of what you believe about the Bible or the gospel, everyone is after justification. So religiously minded people pursue that justification through adherence to some sort of external standard of behavior. Give me the laws, give me the rules, give me the restrictions, tell me what it is I have to do and I'll do it. Spiritually minded people pursue it through enlightenment and experience. Fleshly-minded people pursue it through pleasure and indulgence. But regardless of the means, all of us are after the same thing. We want affirmation, we want worth, we want satisfaction, we want meaning, we want to be right. We want to be justified. In other words, for everyone in this room, regardless of what you believe about God, there is a standard either external put upon you or self-imposed in your own heart by which you try to find justification. We see it in athletes, for instance, who are never satisfied. A couple years ago, Netflix put out a documentary called The Last Dance. It was about the Jordan-era Bulls in the 90s. And and through hours of interviews with all of the players on that team, one of the things that you saw, maybe most most pronounced above above everything else, was that Michael Jordan was this uniquely driven individual. I mean, just unbelievably competitive. I don't know that an athlete exists who is more competitive than he is. He wanted to beat everybody on the court, if they were off playing a game of golf, if they were playing one-on-one, if they were playing a game of horse. He didn't want to lose ever. And the very same thing that drove him to excellence, that drove him to be the greatest basketball player to ever play the game, and no, we're not taking questions or arguments about that, That same drive that he had to let him to be so great also left him unsatisfied with his accomplishments. It left him wanting more. More legacy, more wins, more prestige, more honor, more glory. And just as much as we might see it in the athletic realm or or in uh, in any sort of, uh, of realm, we see it as well in the religious realm. We see the same drive from people who spent their whole lives chasing religion trying to earn from God what ultimately can only be given through him. I came across this quote this this week from Martin Luther, who was describing his life before his faith in Christ. He was living as a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He had devoted himself to the worship of God, the study of God, the memorization of Scripture, all of these things that are inherently are good things. He had devoted his life to the pursuit of God and living in this way where he's trying his best to live an obedient life. Here's what he said about it. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, in other words, you couldn't point to something in my life that was sinful, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. 
I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, indeed I hated, the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God and said, God, as if it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law, God now adds pain to pain, threatening us with his righteous wrath. See, that is the experience of pursuing justification by obedience to the law. You can never placate it. You can never satisfy it. You can never live up to it. And no matter how much obedience you pursue, and no matter how much obedience you're able to exercise, you will never be good enough, certainly according to God's standards. But what Luther is revealing to us in this passage is that you will never be able to even live up to your own standards. When you try to live perfectly, a perfect life of obedience, even to something as great as the law of God, what you will be left with is not the successes that you've had, but the awareness of your losses, the awareness of your failure. In fact, in many ways, your failure is brought into much higher contrast than it would have been if you'd have just been living for yourself all along. The desire and the pursuit of living a perfect, obedient life outside of trust and faith in Jesus Christ leads leads to reveal how much of a failure you actually are. And it leads, as Luther rightly states, ultimately to resentment of God. God, I'm trying to do the right thing and I can't do it and I feel even more guilty and on top of the guilt I feel for being unable to live according to the law, I now feel even more shame and guilt because I'm standing under your wrath. See, the point is this, whether the law you serve is a self-imposed one or the law of God that you find in the Old Testament, it can do nothing but crush and disappoint. And so Paul is saying in verse 21, if you're going to play around with the law, at least understand the rules of the game. And he explains what those rules are in this rather obscure text beginning in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. What in the world is he talking about? We'll try to explain as best we can. Paul is making an argument here from the book of Genesis. This is one of the five books of the law that you find in the Old Testament, the first book that you find in your Bible. He's making an argument from the book of Genesis, which the Judaizers knew inside and out. These Judaizers are likely Pharisees. These are people who knew the law frontward and backward. They knew, uh, likely had memorized all five books of the law. So certainly they understood the reference to the book of Genesis that Paul is making here. And he's using the book of Genesis, he's using the very law itself to make his point to the Galatian church and to condemn these Judaizers. He says, in order to understand who you are, you need to understand your spiritual heritage. And he looks at it through Abraham's lineage. 
Do you remember the promise that God gave Abraham? We talked about it in the previous series. We've talked about it as well in this series on Galatians. But the promise that came to Abraham was this. Abraham, you, as an old man, as a 100-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife, are going to miraculously receive a child. And from that child is going to come more children than you could possibly count. More children than there are stars in the sky or sand on the sea. You're not even going to be able to count them. There's going to be so many. And through your lineage, Abraham, through this miraculous gift, through the promise of this miraculous child, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so Abraham and Sarah wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they're not having children, and they're waiting on the promise of God, and they're not seeing it come to fruition. And so finally, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, well, listen, maybe we need to make this promise come about ourselves. So I want you to go into Hagar. She's our slave woman. I want you to go be with her, and I want you to have a child by Hagar. So Abraham ignores the promise of God, goes into Hagar. Ultimately, she gets pregnant. They have a child together, a son named Ishmael. And Paul refers to this son as the son of the flesh. Now, after that, what's incredible is that God comes to them and says, no, this was not the child of promise that I told you I was going to give. I told you that the child was going to come through Sarah and was going to come miraculously. And they then experience the faithfulness of God when Sarah, at 90 years old, becomes pregnant with their son, Isaac. And it's Isaac about whom Paul, uh, whom, whom Paul refers to as the son of promise. See, the problem was that even though Isaac and Ishmael had the same father, their legal status was provided by their mothers. Since Sarah was a free woman, Isaac was born into freedom. And since Hagar was a slave, Ishmael was born into slavery. And the lesson that Paul is trying to drive here is this. Your parentage determines your position. Your parentage determines your position. And through this rather obscure reference, Paul draws out this allegory. He's saying Hagar is symbolic of the slavery of the law. He compares her to the religion that comes out of Jerusalem. And he says about, this, about Judaism, he says Judaism, this Old Testament law, is represented by Mount Sinai. Now here's why that's significant. Mount Sinai is based in Egypt. And every Jew who would have read this would have known exactly to what Paul was referring. Paul was saying the Judaism that you claim provides freedom is represented by Hagar and by Mount Sinai, by the place of Israel's captivity. The lineage that you have is the lineage of slavery. And through this spiritual allegory, Paul is saying, Abraham thought that he could earn God's promise and force God's hand by trying to have a child with Hagar. And he's saying to the Galatian church, that's exactly what these Judaizers are trying to do to you. They're promising God's blessing, but they're claiming that the only way to receive it is through your own power and your own obedience. They're trying to force God's hand by their obedience to the law. And in forcing God's hand, they're trying to force his blessing. But in doing so, says Paul, all they're doing is demonstrating that their position is slavery through Hagar, not freedom through Sarah. And think about the implications of what it is Paul is saying. Paul's saying these Judaizers, these people who are claiming that they have religious say in your life, who have spiritual authority in your life, they're telling you that if you get circumcised and follow the Old Testament law, you can become children of Abraham. But I'm telling you that by virtue of their instruction, they are proving that they're the spiritual descendants of Hagar. 
They are without promise. They are spiritual slaves. They're spiritual bastards. They cannot offer you what they themselves do not possess. And brother or sister, as we try to understand and contextualize this this for our own lives, here's ultimately what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the problem with any law through which we try to find our justification is that if you are trying to earn your standing, it just proves that you're already a slave. There was nothing that Ishmael could have done to become a free man. The fact that he was born into slavery meant that he and his children would forever be slaves. And likewise, Isaac, as the son of promise, was born free. And there was nothing he could do to enter into slavery to his father Abraham. So to shed more light on this difficult text, here's how Charles Spurgeon talked about this in his sermon on the same text. I want you to listen closely. It's a lengthy quote, but follow it because it's so good. Spurgeon says, This law is the most rigorous master in the world. No wise man would love its service. For after all you have done, the law never gives you a thank you, but says, go on, go on. The poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round a mill and never getting a step further, but only being whipped continually. The faster he goes, the more work he does, the more tired he is, and it is so much the worse for him. Now listen to this. The better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he trusts his own works, the more he may rest assured of his own final rejection and eternal portion with the Pharisees. Hagar was a slave. Ishmael, moral and good as he was, was nothing but a slave and never could be more. Not all the works he ever rendered to his father could make him a freeborn son. The better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more you trust in your own goodness, the more you trust in your own good works, the more you trust in your own ability to obey, the more you trust in your own ability to sanctify yourself and become a better person, the more you trust in your own ability to do anything, the more assured you are that your trust ultimately is not in Jesus Christ at all. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's the reason why when you're struggling in your own life with your assurance of salvation and you're wrestling with whether or not you actually know Christ because you're living in sin and because you're struggling with sin, the worst thing you can do is to try to look at your own heart for assurance and affirmation. Why? Because the only thing your heart can do is bring condemnation. The only thing your heart can do is reveal to you your own failures of the law. It's the reason why when we're struggling with our assurance and we're struggling with our affirmation, the invitation that we have is to look to the cross, to look to something outside of us, the only thing that could bring us salvation, the only thing that could bring us into right relationship with God, the only thing that could bring us justification. And this is why Paul is warning the Galatians and ultimately us not to fall back into the mindset of slaves. He's saying, don't go back to that life. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to thinking that this is about you. It's not. It is all about Christ from beginning to end. Your hope and your confidence and your trust and your ability to move forward is all wrapped up in Christ. See, this is the big temptation of religion. 
The big temptation of religion is to try to experience the effects of Christianity without living out the new life that only Christ can give. We think about it as trying to do the right thing. I'm going to attend church and I'm going to study and I'm going to stop committing these apparent sins and I'm going to improve myself. And if I'm doing these, then God must love me. And there's no freedom in that. There's only furthered slavery. So then what's the alternative? Verse 26. He's now contrasting the religion that comes out of Jerusalem, the Judaism that he says ultimately is slavery. He says, but there's another Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, that's a reference to Sarah, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he, was, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Again, there's a lot going on here, but ultimately here's what he's saying. He's saying if, if religion, if your own pursuit at justification, if, if your own self-improvement projects could bring about salvation, then we wouldn't need faith in Jesus Christ, but they can't. The only thing that our self-improvement projects can do is drag us further and further into slavery. And Paul says, ultimately, all of those things are like the religion that came out of Jerusalem. They're like that Old Testament Judaism, promising freedom but unable to deliver it. He says, but that's not our home and that's not our heritage. That's not our spiritual inheritance. We are children of the Jerusalem above. And when you read as to what people, different people think about that Jerusalem above, some people claim that it's heaven, some people claim that it's the church. I'm of the mindset that it's probably a reference to both, that it's a reference to the fact that there is a new nation, a new ethnicity, a new people that God is bringing together for himself, a people that is made up of all of the saints who've gone before us and all of the saints who are living now and all of the saints who ever will live, that we comprise a new nation, a Jerusalem above, part of a new community. And he says, our spiritual mother, as it were, is Sarah. We are born free because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. While Hagar is emblematic of the slavery of the law, Sarah is emblematic of the freedom of the gospel. In other words, if you know God the Father through Jesus Christ, then you are a son or daughter of Sarah. And like Isaac, according to Paul, you are a child of promise. Free. And Paul quotes the wonder of that promise from the book of Isaiah in verse 27 when he says this, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The children of the desolate one, in other words, Sarah, who for 90 years had been unable to conceive, had 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 all kinds of issues in trying to have a child, will be blessed and ultimately will have more offspring than those who had a husband. In other words, the beauty of the gospel is that by the gospel, many more will be made sons and daughters than ever could have been born into national Israel. Think about that for a minute. 
the chosen nation of God in the Old Testament was this tiny little relatively unimportant in terms of world history, this relatively unimportant nation called Israel, who according to scripture was chosen not because they were the most in the world, because they were the most important, the most influential, the greatest in number, but because they were the least. They were least important. And God was saying through these people, I'm going to demonstrate my goodness and my faithfulness and my care and my compassion and my concern. And so these Judaizers clung to that for their meaning. We are the chosen ones. We're the people of God. Come be like us. But the promise of the gospel was something infinitely greater. That through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, regardless of your ethnicity, your race, your background, your social status, you could be brought into the new family, could become a child of the promise. It's, a, it's the wonder of the fact that we, as Gentiles in this room, 2,000 years removed from Paul's writing and 4,000 years removed from the promise given to Abraham, are still adding to the spiritual lineage of Abraham. And the question that Paul wants us to consider in this obscure text this morning is this, who is your mother? Are you a son or daughter of Hagar? And here's how you know if you are. Are you enslaved? Are you enslaved to the law? Enslaved to your own self-salvation project? Enslaved to trying to earn your meaning and your value in this life? Enslaved to trying to receive the affirmation of other people, enslaved to trying to earn something from God? Are you enslaved to the law, trying to earn your justification, trying to prove your worth, trying to accomplish for yourself everything you can accomplish, but never never getting enough to satisfy? And if that's you, the call to you today is to experience, for the first time, sonship freedom, to receive the invaluable gift of adoption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the response of some, even as they hear this, especially after a text that is as potentially complicated as this one is, man, I I just realized how little I know about the Bible and I don't know much about God and I'm a pretty messed up person and my background is so jacked up and full of all kinds of sin and I don't know enough about the Bible or enough about God to become a son. And the encouragement for you are the words that one saint, a man named J.I. Packer, described this way. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin, to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. In other words, what provides your adoption, your entrance into the spiritual family, what proves your sonship is not your intellectual knowledge or the sophistication of your words in prayer or the perceived worthiness or goodness of your own life, but rather the object of your faith, namely Christ. Christ fills the gap. Christ accomplished for you what you couldn't do yourself. And with as little as you know about God, 
with as much or as little as you know about your sin and with as much or as little as you know about yourself, the invitation is to take that to him. To be willing to humbly come to the Father and go, God, I don't know you very well. And perhaps all I know is that there is a God and that he has a son named Jesus who lived a perfect life and died death for me and rose from the dead. But I'm trusting in that son for my acceptance into the family. That is the invitation that is given to you today. He's ready to receive you as a son or a daughter of Sarah, an accepted and affirmed child of God, born again into absolute freedom and perfect promise. And if you're here today and you're a child of Sarah, in other words, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by him, you've received adoption into his family, the invitation for you is don't live like a child of Hagar. Don't return to the law. Don't return to slavery. Don't try to... Don't try to, now that you know freedom, return yourself to slavery, thinking that somehow you will make yourself more acceptable. You will never be more of a son or daughter of God than you are right now. You will never be more perfectly loved and accepted than you find yourself in this moment. To paraphrase one pastor, God is not in love with some future perfect version of you who has it all together and who has it all figured out. He is in love with you right now as you sit because of Jesus Christ. So don't return to slavery. Bask in the freedom that your sonship offers. Freedom to live in joy because of his acceptance. Freedom to fail. And having already received his forgiveness, enjoy the loving embrace of your father. Freedom to succeed as the Christ life begins to be lived out in you. Freedom to be rejected by the world because you have the acceptance of God. Freedom to be known and loved because you have spiritual brothers and sisters who are just as dependent on the grace of God as you are. Freedom to call God Father because of the Holy Spirit's intimate presence and indwelling power in your life. And it's because of that freedom that we get to come to the Lord's table together this morning. Because when we come to the Lord's table, what we are declaring, not only in our words, but also in our actions, is that we are utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. It's a recognition that we are reliant on him to have provided what we could not have provided ourselves. And so when we come to the table and we take the bread, we remember that Jesus Christ gave his body for us that he experienced unbelievable torment at the hands of mankind, unbelievable brutality, and more than his physical suffering, that he experienced spiritual suffering, that he took all of our sin, past, present, and future, onto his body in that moment, that he was rejected by the Father so that you and I could become sons and daughters. And when we take of the cup, we remember that Jesus shed his own precious blood for the forgiveness of sins. That our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ so that we stand before God not spotted and filthy, but clean. The Bible describes it as if we're wearing robes of pure white linen. That that's the sort of perfection that God the Father sees when he looks at us, not because of us, 
but because of what Christ did on our behalf. It's an invitation into the communion of the body, relationship with brothers and sisters who are also part of the family. It's a recognition of our spiritual heritage and our inheritance. And it's all made possible because of Christ. So if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, if you're a son or daughter of God, we would invite you to this table with open arms to partake in these elements and to recognize what it is they represent. And if you're here today and you're part of that second camp, you're not sure exactly what you believe about all of this. You're not sure that you trust Christ to provide for you what you need. You're not sure that you believe that any of this is real. We're, first of all, we wanna say we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here and there's no place we'd rather that you be. And as you continue to walk forward in your spiritual life, investigating what it is that you believe and investigating your doubts and asking questions, we would love for you to be able to do that in the safety of this church and congregation so that we can love you and care for you through those things. But we'd also ask that you not participate in this, not so much as a, as a prohibition, but really because this is something that is reserved for the family of God. And so we'd invite you to consider the texts that we talked about, the things that we talked about, just to stay where you are seated this morning and pray and observe what happens. So in just a moment, what we're gonna do is we're all gonna ask everybody to come up through this side, my left, your right, come up and receive the elements and then return back out, my right, your left, this direction. And please wait to take those elements. We'll take them all together in just a few moments. But first, we're gonna take a few minutes of silence to be still with God, to enjoy his presence, to enjoy the presence of our Father with us, to receive his love, even in the quiet of the morning. And after our prayer, we'll enter into that together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you as Father, that you hear us as Father, that you receive us as Father. God, we thank you that according to your word, Jesus Christ himself is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We thank you that we have received freedom, that we received freedom because we were born again by one who is free and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God, we pray that we would not return to the yoke of slavery, that we would not pretend that there is something left to be done, but that we would realize that everything we needed was provided for you, was provided by you already, and that we've received everything we need for life and godliness. So God, help us to trust you And as we come to this table this morning, would our hearts be renewed with a reminder of what it is Jesus provided for us in the cross and in this resurrection. And for those who are here who don't know you, would today be the day where they are released from the bondage of slavery? Slavery to religion, slavery to the pursuit of their own happiness that ultimately they have found to leave them lacking. Pursuit of the affirmation of other people would they find in you the perfect acceptance that can only be found in you. And we'll give you praise and honor and glory for what it is that you choose to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.